And thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Uh, I just got here about two minutes ago. As many of you know, getting out of London on a Friday is a complete nightmare. You just grow old again. So apologies for being a bit late. Uh, anyway, I'm delighted to see so many distinguished alumni and former staff of the Oxford uh, Department of Education. And I'm really pleased that you've created your own society. I think that's great. And obviously, you've got some very distinguished alumni, uh, Tim Brighouse, who I know well, who did a lot to improve schools in Birmingham and London. Uh, and with Tim, you should never be short of a lively debate. Um, but I'm particularly grateful for you for inviting me and to give this annual, second annual lecture. And I'm very honored to follow in Tim's footsteps. And of course, I'm delighted again to be in Oxford which has played such an important part in my career. As Anne says, I was here as an undergraduate at Corpus, and as I, I will reflect on a little bit later, I came back in the mid-90s and set up our first summer school here. Uh, but it was also here 10 years later when I had a slightly unique experience. After 10 years of the Sutton Trust summer of Sutton Trust sponsoring summer schools at Oxford, I received a call saying, thank you very much for all you have done. I said, what do you mean? And the reply came back, oh, we found a new sponsor. <laughs> so I promise you, that's not the kind of call I normally get at the Sutton Trust. So the bottom line is we don't sponsor the Oxford Summer School anymore, but we did for 10 years. Now, as I said, Oxford has played a big part in my life, and so has social mobility. And tonight, I want to talk about why social mobility is so important, and what we can do to improve it, and also why I, I'm actually so passionate about it. To understand that, I think I should tell you a little bit about my own background, which Anna's already said something. Uh, I am the son of a Viennese emigre and grew up in very mod modest circumstances in Yorkshire, in Wakefield, till the age of 11, at which time the family moved to Surrey. After attending state schools, I was lucky enough to get in here and then completed an MBA at the London Business School, after which I moved to Boston to work for the Boston Consulting Group. A few years later, I joined a client in New York before setting up my own firm, the Sutton Company, to get into a new field which has now didn't have a name, it then became Leverage Buyouts, it's now called Private Equity. I called my firm the Sutton Company because I lived near Sutton in Surrey and I lived on Sutton Place in New York, so that kind of seemed like a, a good combination of the two. Now I purposely didn't name it after myself because uh, you know, no one wants a bankrupt company named after themselves, and I just wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, that confident that it was going to make it. In fact, after 18 months in my own business, that seemed like a wise decision, as I hadn't really accomplished anything except spend a lot of money. In fact, I was technically bankrupt, but fortunately my accounting system was so bad, I didn't realize it. And even more fortunately, neither did my accountants, and I see some grey beards in the audience, <laughs> who were Arthur Anderson. I'm sure some of you remember them, as, 
as you probably know, they themselves went bankrupt a few years later. Uh, so anyway, I just soldiered on regardless. And just when I thought I wouldn't make it, I looked at a business for sale in Seattle on the west coast of the US and subsequently met with the owner to make him an offer. I went in as chief executive. I managed to buy the business and increase sales and profits mainly by putting in a sophisticated salesman's compensation system which resulted in a tripling of the value of the business. That business was the first of many in the US and Europe which over a period of 15 years my partners and I acquired, improved and exited successfully. Now m most people who make a lot of money just keep on going and make more. I actually found it somewhat demotivating and I wanted to do something else. And although I was by now living in London, I'd spent most of my adult life in New York, where if you're successful, you're expected to do something philanthropic. So I set up the Sutton Trust in 1997, really as a part-time interest, intending to spend much of my time working on my golf game. Well, I've become so obsessed by it, I've spent all my working hours uh, on the Sutton Trust, as my wife Susan will attest to, and more recently, uh, the Education Endowment Foundation. Meanwhile, as you can imagine, my golf game has gone completely to hell. <laughs> now, what prompted me to set up the Sutton Trust in the first place was what I found when I returned to Britain in the, in the mid-90s after 20 years in the US. I was shocked and appalled at what had happened to opportunities for bright children from what I would call non-privileged backgrounds. I'll give you a couple of examples. I visited my old school, which was Reigate Grammar School, which actually was not actually a state grammar school. It was a private school that was 100% you know, free places, funded, funded by the state. It was now charging full fees with virtually no bursaries. So, it occurred to me that most of the children who were there with me, including myself, would now be excluded on financial grounds. And I discovered that this has not just happened to my school, but that all the private day schools which were state funded in my day, that, that scheme, those schemes had been stopped. We have in fact have subsequently documented that until 1976, a staggering 70% of the independent day schools in this country were principally state funded through the direct grant scheme, which there are about 185 schools in that scheme, and a, a number of local schemes, which I was the beneficiary, which was Surrey County Council funded, Rygate and some other schools. Having faced one shock at how socially exclusive my old school had become, I was now about to get a second one. Uh, Corpus discovered I'd made a little bit of money and I received an invitation to have lunch with the president who was at that time Keith Thomas. I'm sure some of you know him or know of him. In my day, the college took a number of students from South Wales. We weren't Jesus, but we did take a few. All working class, most of them brilliant. Keith, who was Welsh himself, told me he'd had taken hardly any Welsh students for the past 10 years. So it occurred to me, what would happen to some of my fellow students and friends? I'm thinking specifically about one who is one of the top physicists in this country and another who 
has actually been very successful in the same field I have in, in private equity. In fact, we found out that in the 1970s, two-thirds of the entry to Oxford was from state or state-funded schools, and by 1997, it had dropped to below half. Uh, I felt we'd gone backwards. So I realized the opportunities for bright children from non-privileged backgrounds were poor and got worse, and I felt I, I, I'd like to do something about it. So I set up the Sutton Trust 15 years ago out of a sense of outrage at the waste of talent in Britain. In those intervening years, I think we've made a big impact by putting social mobility on the map, but also in developing solutions that are truly evidence-based. We spend a lot of time on evaluation, a lot of time and money on evaluation. Uh, as, as many of you, I'm sure, know, we work with researchers all across the country to make that happen. Now, perhaps the single most influential piece of research that we commissioned out of over 100 at this stage has been on social mobility itself. Anecdotal evidence suggested there had been a decline in opportunities for low and middle income children, but it wasn't until we commissioned LSE to look at social mobility in Britain that this decline was documented. The study showed, I think shockingly, that social mobility in Britain had declined over the last 30 years. We also asked LSE to do a comparative study, and that showed that we in Britain, together with the United States, surprisingly, have the lowest level of mobility of any developed country for which there is data. Put simply, it is very difficult for children from less privileged backgrounds to move up in our society, and it is more difficult than it used to be. These findings, I think, have had a big impact on the political debate, as I mentioned earlier. Now everyone talks about social mobility. We held a social mobility summit in London in May, uh, where actually, interestingly, we were looking at Australia, Canada, Britain, and the United States, where inequality is fairly similar, but mobility in Canada and Australia is far greater than Britain and the United States. Everybody came to speak. Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband, Michael Gove, they all spoke and they all said the same thing. Social mobility is the biggest social issue we face. While there is now plenty of acceptance of the problem of social mobility, far too little is being done about it. Now why has Britain's social mobility declined and why is it so low? I mean, there are lots of complicated, lots of reasons, but boiling down the LSE work, there are two main reasons. Firstly, we have high and increasing inequality. Secondly, increased educational opportunities, of which, as we know, the numbers going to universities have increased enormously, uh, have disproportionately benefited the better off. In fact, there was an OECD report out earlier this year which showed that inequality in Britain has, over the last 30 years, increased faster than any other developed country and is one of the highest in the world. And interestingly enough, that does not include the huge impact of hundreds of thousands of wealthy foreigners that we have in this country who do not file tax returns and are the benefit of very favorable tax treatment, even though they are resident the so-called non-domiciles. 
That is not the case in other advanced countries. Uh, so if you include them, inequality is actually greater than we think. It's greater than the Gini coefficient. And we've actually got LSE looking at this to see what the impact is if you added in the impact of, of foreigners. Now, when my old school left the state sector, it did, it did so because governments believed they could create all ability schools in place of the old grammar secondary modern divide. I'm actually a believer in comprehensives, very much so, where the needs of pupils of all abilities are properly catered for. But, you know, let's face it, we don't have a comprehensive system. In too many parts of the country, academic selection has simply been replaced by social selection as the key admissions criterion. <clears throat> the result is that Britain has probably, well, has probably the most socially selective school system in the developed world. Another OECD report earlier this week actually confirmed this and showed we, we, we really have a very socially selective system. There were only, I think there was only one country, Russia, that had a more socially selective system. Now the school you go to and ultimately your educational achievement depends hugely on your parents' income. And I'll just run through that. I mean the wealthiest, just less, just, un, I'm just have a little sip of this. Just under 1% uh, of children in this country go to boarding schools. Whereas, as you know, the fees are approaching 30,000 pre-tax, which is you know, 60,000 before tax, that kind of number, which is obviously out of reach of nearly everybody. The next 6% go to independent day schools, where fees run at about 11,000 a year after tax. Then about 4% of children go to the remaining grammar schools, which in many places have effectively become free independent schools for the middle classes. Only 2% of pupils in grammar schools are eligible for free school meals, compared to 16% of all secondary pupils. And then we've looked at the top performing comprehensives, the next 8%. So the next 8% go to the highest performing faith schools and comprehensives in affluent areas, which again, which again contain very few low and middle income children. The remaining 80% or so of young people who are in the comprehensives have to share what's left and their life chances, we believe, are significantly lower as a result. This damaging divide between an elite 20% and the rest is not only incredibly unfair, but also inefficient. We're, we're wasting talent. The Boston Consulting Group, which is the firm I used to work for, have done a lot of pro bono work for us showed that improved social mobility, making it sort of average level of social mobility in this country, would add a, add a conservatively estimated 4% to our GDP, which reflects the economic in, impact of a better educated workforce. So what can we do about it? Now, disadvantage starts before children are born and goes right through to the workplace. So you really have to start early, and we believe you must take sustained action all through the education cycle. For this reason, we work right through from early years, through primary and secondary schools, through access to university and to the professions. Of the hundred or so 
more projects we've funded. I'll only tell you about a couple today, two, two of the more important ones. I was familiar with the summer schools offered by American Ivy League universities. So in 1996, I approached this university with the idea of funding a summer school for students from those state schools from which they had never heard, of which there were masses of them. In 1997, we, we funded a pilot summer school for 64 students. They spent a week here sampling lectures, tutorials, enjoying the social life. It was an amazing week and nearly all of them applied and 16 ended up getting in. So 16 out of 64 I thought was a pretty good return. Obviously here was a model that had wide applicability so we now have over, well this year we'll have 1200 students, 1200 students at seven top universities. More importantly Based on our model, summer schools became a government program with the government funding summer schools at the majority of British universities. Now we've taken it one step further and we sponsored a summer school at Yale this summer with, 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 together with the Fulbright Commission for 64 non-privileged British 17-year-olds, which actually I'm really excited about. One of the reasons the US looks so attractive is that tuition fees, as you know, ha have, are up to 9,000 a year here, which makes actually the US look a lot more reasonable. In fact, if they get into Yale, everything is free, is free as fees and living costs are means tested and below $70,000 of family income, about 40,000 pounds, nothing is payable, no, no loans, uh, uh, nothing you, you, you come out with without any without any debt also uh, our degrees are generally three years long students usually study one subject so I believe we get a very narrow diet of education particularly after we've already specialized at a level I think the breadth of the US bachelor degree four years which I think combines breadth with depth actually gives a very good student experience to what's on offer compared to what's on offer in Britain. Uh, I'm actually confident the Yale Summer School is a, has, been, it has been a great success. Uh, I mean, the kids had a wonderful time. Uh, and actually, they, they, they were based at Yale, but they actually visited Princeton, Columbia, Harvard, and MIT. So they saw that, you know, everything, a lot of good places in the Northeast. And I think we'll be funding more US summer schools next year. Now the next project I'd like to talk about is open access, which is in my view uh, the most revolutionary. There is actually no, if you look at OECD data, there's no other advanced country where the gap in performance between independent and state schools is as large as it is in Britain, and where it matters so much whether you went to an independent or a state school. Now, as I mentioned earlier, boarding counts for, accounts for 1% of secondary schools, and the sheer cost means there is very, very little you can do with boarding to make it generally available. But for independent day schools, which, as I said, account for 6% of all secondary schools, the Sutton Trust has been advocating for years a state-funded system of open access admissions. We successfully piloted this scheme at the Belvedere School in Liverpool in partnership with the Girls' Day School Trust. 
By open access, I mean that 100% of places are available based on merit alone, irrespective of parents' ability to pay. Parents then play a, pay a sliding scale of fees according to their means. And in this case, the sponsors, which was the Girls' Day School Trust and Sutton Trust, paid the rest. In fact, the idea really came because I visited the Ivy Leagues a number of years ago and discovered that obviously that's the way they do their admissions. And I thought, well, why don't we try that for independent day schools? Over seven years of the scheme, 70% of the girls receive funding, with a staggering 30% on free places. These are girls, and these are basically girls who are entitled to free school meals. And the results in social and academic terms were excellent. Um, the, the school improved its academic performance, and we surveyed the school every year, and it was basically a happy school both to teach and learn. And now, because parents paid according to means, we, the sponsors, over the seven-year period, ended up paying just over half the fees of the school, which worked out on a per-pupil basis to be less than the cost of a state school place. I think rolling this scheme out to other independent day schools with state funding is what the Americans would call a no-brainer. And when we launched the scheme, there were a dozen leading independent schools prepared to go open access if state funding were available. There are now over 80 independent day schools who are prepared to go open access, which is almost half the serious academic day schools in the country. These include such famous schools as Westminster, Manchester Grammar, King Edwards, Birmingham, City of London, I could go on and on. Now, the, I think that the main obstacle to open access is, is not practical. It can be done, and the schools want to do it, which is really important. But, but it's political. For Labour, selection is the stumbling block. Uh, this is a shame, because we're not incre increasing selection with open access. What we're doing is just democratising existing selection. We're not creating new selective schools. I think for the Conservatives, the memories of the political storm created by David Willett's criticism of grammar schools are still very vivid. And there's, there's obviously a nervousness given the privileged backgrounds of the, current of the current cabinet. I think they're afraid another class war might ignite. Opening up, now moving on to state schools, we need, I think we need to take concerted action to widen access to the remaining grammar schools, because they're not going to go away, and to leading comprehensives and the more academic comprehensives. For grammar schools, I think this means that looking at the methods of selection to see that they're fair, I think they're far too coachable, uh, the selection methods at grammar schools, which we overcame in Liverpool with the, uh, with, with the Belvedere scheme. And I think grammar schools or should be working with bright, non-privileged children to encourage them to apply. There is no outreach from grammar schools. And I think there should be some preparation given to uh, some of these, so these pupils to prepare them for the entrance exam. As you know, there's a lot of coaching, private coaching goes on for grammar schools. And uh, in fact, a lot of, a lot of uh, 
entrance to grammar schools come from prep schools. Now for faith schools and other leading comprehensives, we believe that the admission system should be reformed to give low and middle income children a fair shot. At present, decisions are made on the basis of whether one child's parents are deemed more religious than another's, or whether a child lives closer to the school gates than another. The fairest way to decide admissions, we believe, is to use certain criteria as a cutoff and then use ballots to allocate places. Interestingly enough, we've done a lot of Mori surveying on this. And if you ask people, do you think ballots is a good way to uh, you know, select, well, allocate children to schools, they say, oh, it's terrible, it's all chance. But when you give them a specific, like there is a, there is a school and there are twice as many children in the catchment area of the school than there are places. Uh, do you think it's fairer to put all the names in a hat, essentially, take half of them out and say, you go? Or is it fairer to decide who lives closer? And in that case, people say a little, uh, a, a little uh, have got a majority in favor of a ballot. So when you give them a specific, the same is true with, with religious schools. Uh, so we believe that properly structured, and we also did surveys of what goes on in other countries, and actually ballots are widespread in other countries. Very, they're very unusual here. So I think a fair system of admissions, which results in a spread of children from different backgrounds in schools, is really at the heart of an equitable system. Of course, social mobility is not only about democratic democratizing opportunities at the top, vitally important though that is. The greater challenge, perhaps, is to address the long tail of underachievement that we have at the bottom in this country. And here, we were lucky enough to be successful in competition with 15 other nonprofits to receive a 125 million endowment from, from the government to address this issue. Michael Gove, in the middle of all the cuts last year, suddenly announced he'd found 125 million uh, for, to, to try and address this issue. Um, and we were lucky enough to, to get that. This endowment is housed in a new charity which the Sutton Trust set up and which I chair, which is named the Education Endowment Foundation. Together with the income from the endowment and fundraising, we are projecting over 200 million to spend over 200 million over the next 15 years. And in fact, we did actually receive another 10 million from the government to look at the transition between primary and secondary schools. <clears throat> the money is to be spent on children entitled to free school meals in the most challenging schools, which the, the neediest children in our, in our society. In effect, the foundation operates as a gigantic do tank. By that I mean we have the freedom to experiment, innovate, and rigorously evaluate projects and scale those up that are cost effective. This is exactly the way we've been operating at the Sutton Trust. The projects we fund through the foundation will not only have an impact in and of themselves, but if proven effective, I think we'll make a compelling case for the way billions of public money is spent on our neediest children. So that's the big prize. The foundation's got off to a flying start. Uh, we've put together an outstanding organization and have made 
To date, 21 grants totaling 12 million pounds. The grants cover a range of product, projects, in, including uh, a Durham-led project into peer-to-peer -peer tutoring, which is 11-year-olds teaching 9-year-olds maths, which I think has got an enormous potential if it really checks out. Uh, and we've also, another one is we've made a grant to the Institute of Education as to how teaching assistance can be effectively deployed, which again is, I think is a big issue. Uh, a lot of people, or a lot of the research says that teaching assistance actually don't add a lot. The Education Endowment Foundation is an unprecedented opportunity to make a difference and one that I am personally incredibly excited about and committed to. Now just to wrap this up, I've, I've discussed a number of important measures we can take to address our some shamefully low levels of social mobility. Central to all of this has to be teachers. As many of you know, they're typically 70% of a school's budget and the achievement of pupils is largely de determined by how good they are. I mean, just a personal thing, I got into this about 15 years ago, coming from the business world, and <coughs> like a lot of people from that world, I kind of thought teachers had a lot of holidays, it was a pretty cushy job, and <laughs> I'll be honest, I've probably you know, talked to over a thousand teachers in the last 15 years. I'm sure a lot of teachers in the audience, you guys are heroes, I mean, especially in inner city schools. It's a really tough job. Now we can't simply say, say the solution is to attract more good people into teaching, although that is important. But it's more important in terms of numbers to work with those who are already in post, uh, uh, who are already in post and to up their game. In my view, much of schools policy focuses on structures, you know, academies, free schools, what's better, which I think is more like moving deck chairs around. The teaching force is huge, 440,000 teachers, and I believe the most important thing we can do for our children is to improve their effectiveness. That's what the international evidence tells us, and it's what research and experiencing schools here shows. Good teaching makes the biggest difference. Uh, I've met uh, in, several times in the last year uh, because I, I've got a place in Florida with, with Jeb Bush and have discussed with him the Florida reforms which generally regarded as the most far-reaching in the US. The system they've put in place is that teachers are assessed on the basis of student achievement, peer and head teacher assessment. Those found to be under par are given co a comprehensive package of professional development support and every opportunity to improve. I know that the system of appraisal and performance management that we have in English schools is more rigorous than it used to be, but there's still, I think, too often a reluctance to conf confront poor teaching when other remedies have been tried and failed. Now the whole area of teacher effectiveness is a major focus, if not the major focus, of the Education Endowment Foundation and the Sutton Trust going forward. Now finally, just to summarize, social mobility is I think about basic fairness. Children should be able to realize their potential irrespective of their parents' in income. Perhaps even more importantly, 
increasing social mobility in this country is an economic necessity. As I said, it's 4% of GDP. Other developed countries are more efficient at developing talent than we are, and we, and we face increased competition from developing countries such as India and China. The bottom line is we just can't afford our class system for much longer. Thanks, thank you all for listening. Happy to take questions.